Flannery O'Connor was one of the great American writers of the 20th century. And she's often remembered for her frequently strange, often shocking, and at times violent short stories. And many of her stories are, are shocking and surprising when you read them, but, but there is a reason for that. Because you see, O'Connor wasn't just an American writer. More importantly, she was a Catholic, a Christian writer, and she used her stories as a vehicle to describe both the, the sinful patterns of human life and the redemptive effects of God's grace. And yet the form that redemption takes in her stories is often in and of itself violent. In her story, Revelation, for instance, the main character finds redemption when an angry teenage girl assaults her in the waiting room of a doctor's office and calls her an old warthog. In another story called Greenleaf, a woman seems to experience redemption in the moment when a wild bull gores her to death. And in one of her most famous stories, A Good Man is Hard to Find, redemption takes the form of a roadside execution. Now, some readers of her stories struggle to understand why O'Connor includes all this gruesome violence in her stories or how, how any of it can possibly be redemptive. But in fact, Flannery O'Connor did have her reasons. And those reasons arose from, from, like I said, the way she understood sin and grace in the human life. As one literary critic put it, Miss O'Connor used violence to convey her vision because she knew that the violence of rejection demands an equal violence of redemption. Man needs to be struck by mercy. God must overpower him. That's not something that we hear very often, that, that men and women need to be struck by mercy, that God redeems us by overpowering us. But you know, that doesn't seem too far off from what we find in the book of Genesis. Certainly seems to be the case with at least one of the main characters. Jacob, Jacob is a man who experiences the grace of God throughout his life. And, and Jacob is slowly changed and redeemed as a character. But that redemption doesn't come easy. Jacob, Jacob has to be struck by mercy. God saves him by overpowering him. And all of that is wonderfully captured in a single story from Jacob's life, a very strange story that occurs in Genesis chapter 32, a story that you might almost expect to find in the pages of a Flannery O'Connor anthology. It's the story of Jacob wrestling with and being overpowered by God at the river Jabbok. In this session, we'll take a closer look at that story and what it has to teach us, not only about the grace and redemption of God that Jacob experienced, but the nature of grace and redemption as we experience it as well. So with all that being said, let's dive right in. In order to understand what takes place in chapter 32, we have to remember the context. Jacob left his father and mother and fled from the wrath of his brother Esau back in chapter 28. And he went to stay with his uncle Laban. Now it's been about 20 years since that time. And during those 20 years, he's married Laban's two daughters, 
Rachel and Leah. And Jacob has prospered and he's had many sons. Then in chapter 31, he begins to hear rumors that his uncle Laban has grown resentful of him and all his success. And the Lord tells him to leave Laban and to take his family and return to the land of Canaan where he was born. So he does. But in going back, Jacob knows that he will have to face his brother Esau, the same brother who wanted to kill him the last time he saw him. So Jacob, being the, the planner, the schemer that he is, he comes up with a plan to smooth things over as he returns. He sends some messengers ahead of him, and he tells them to take a message to Esau. Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. But then when the messengers come back, they report that Esau is coming to meet Jacob and he's bringing 400 men with him. And Jacob begins to feel fear. In fact, Genesis says he is greatly afraid and distressed. Of course, Esau's large party could be a good sign. It could mean he's so enthusiastic about seeing his brother that he's decided to bring his entire household and everyone belonging to him for a big reunion. But Jacob is obviously worried that these 400 men are supposed to be a fighting force coming to destroy him. And he knows just how bad this meeting with Esau could go. So, as you would expect, he comes up with a plan. He divides his servants up into two groups, each with hundreds of livestock meant as presents for Esau, because he thinks that maybe if Esau still wants to kill him, then these two waves of gifts will work to appease his anger. And, and that's not just a guess at his reasoning. We, we actually know that. We know what he was thinking because this is one of the rare times in Hebrew narrative where the author tells us exactly what is going on in someone's mind. He says, For Jacob thought, I may appease Esau with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. It's important not to miss the religious connotations of some of this language that Jacob's using. He's approaching Esau the way that a pagan worshiper might approach an angry deity. He's offering a sacrifice in the hopes that, that he can placate his brother, the same way somebody might try to placate a pagan god. He's doing, he's doing exactly what we've come to expect of him. Jacob is using his natural gift of cunning not to trick Esau in this instance, but to cajole and persuade him. He's doing whatever it takes to ensure that what he will receive from Esau will be a blessing and not violence or a curse. And then after Jacob puts this plan into motion, and he sends his servants and livestock ahead to placate his brother. He then sends his wives and his kids ahead of him across the river Jabbok, and he himself stays behind. And then something strange happens. Jacob is alone by himself in the dark at the river, and then we're told, and a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. The narrator doesn't tell us who this man is. We know only what Jacob knows. He, 
He can't see who his attacker is. He doesn't know what he wants. All he knows is that some assailant has shown up in the dark and is wrestling with him. It's a bizarre scene, this wrestling match that lasts the entire night. But as strange as it is, in many ways, it's, it's also a fitting image of what Jacob's entire life has been about. All his life he's been wrestling. From the moment he came out of the womb holding on to his brother's heel to the moment when he is holding on to this strange man and refusing to let him go. In all of his dealings with his brother Esau, with his uncle Laban, Jacob, he's used cunning and used strategizing and even deceit to get what he wants. And in all of that, he's He's really always been wrestling, always fighting, always trying to seize control, whatever it takes. Jacob the scrapper. And now at the edge of the river Jabbok, when he's experiencing the, the greatest fear that he's ever felt, when his brother is coming to meet him with 400 men, when, when he wonders whether this time perhaps his cunning may not be enough. Now at this moment of greatest desperation, Jacob wrestles. And it's clear that he can't overpower his opponent. At one point, his adversary cripples Jacob's hip with a simple touch. But even then, even after he's crippled, as, as the dawn begins to break and the stranger tells him to let go, Jacob refuses. He hangs on. He pleads for a blessing. And so the stranger blesses him by giving him a new name. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Finally, the fight comes to an end and the stranger leaves. But what exactly has happened here? On the one hand, Jacob got what he wanted. He got a blessing, but maybe not the one he intended. All of his life, all of his life, he's been Jacob, the heel grabber, the bargainer, the master strategist. It's how he got a birthright. It's how he got his father's blessing, and, and it's how he got his wealth and his wives. But this fight has given him something very different. Not, not new or added wealth, but a new identity. And it's come to him at a cost. As he goes to meet Esau, he won't be going strutting or striding or showing his strength. Jacob goes to Esau limping. Interpreters of this story are fascinated by what takes place at the river. It's definitely a blessing. It's redemptive, but even more importantly, it seems to be a moment of transformation for Jacob. One scholar, Ellen Davis, she describes it this way. The man who now returns to Canaan is very different from the man who left. All the memorable stories about clever, aggressive Jacob predate the encounter at the Jabbok, where he receives the blessing he previously tried to steal. He limps on from there, simultaneously crippled and elevated. Henceforth, the narrative shows not Jacob the heel grabber, outsmarter or self-aggrandizer, but rather Israel, a man now transformed. Interestingly, throughout the entire story, the only thing that we're ever told about Jacob's opponent is that, that he is a man, or at least that's how it seems. And Jacob tries to get his name, but the man refuses to give it. But afterward, after he has been crippled and blessed, 
and renamed. And after the stranger has left, Jacob realizes who it is that he was wrestling with. And he, he memorializes it by giving a name to the place of the fight. So Jacob called the name Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob walked away from the river a changed man, but the change wasn't just the result of that one night. In fact, God had been at work in Jacob's life for many years through, through promise and blessing, as well as through hardship, loss, trials, slowly chipping away at Jacob's self-assurance, slowly curing him of all his pride and manipulations. What happened at the river that night wasn't just an act of violence. It was, as Jacob realized the next day, it was a means of redemption. It was an encounter with the God of grace. God showed up to put Jacob, the self-reliant heel grabber, to death so that he could bring a new man, Israel, to life. And in that regard, as, as strange as this story is, it's actually one that we can relate to. Because that is how the Bible describes the grace of God in our own lives. C.S. Lewis used to say that God's goal is not to make nice people, but to make entirely new creatures. And because of that, the redemptive grace of God involves not just improvement and blessing, but transformation. As Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity, mere improvement is not redemption. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. That's one of the reasons that the Bible sometimes uses violent language when it talks about grace. The Apostle Paul, for instance, who first experienced God's grace by being assaulted on a road, Paul describes salvation as a process of being put to death and then being brought to new life. Elsewhere, Paul says that we ought to regard difficulties and hardship and even suffering as potential forms of God's grace because they are the means, they are the means that God uses to make us new, to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus. It's why Flannery O'Connor often used violence in her stories as a symbol for redemption. Because as Jacob discovered at the river that night, sometimes in order to bless us and transform us into the people that he has destined us to be, sometimes God must wrestle with us and teach us to limp. Because like Jacob, what he wants for us isn't just improvement, but redemption. Not simply blessing, but transformation. Transformation.